0: Treasury rates are skyrocketing, bond prices are plunging. What does it all mean? We're going to be talking to Jeff Snyder about that, the head of global research at Alhambra Partners. I'm going to read the first sentence of a recent blog post of his, and here it is. If you're fortunate to be able to do this long enough, you're absolutely assured to get caught with your pants down, and almost certainly more than once. Jeff, that reminds me, when I first moved to Hollywood trying to be the next Ryan Seacrest, it was hard making ends meet. So what I would do is uh, I would go dance at some private parties, you know, some private residences. And I was wondering, is that what you're writing about here as well?
1: Well, I'm glad that you had that experience because it sounds like it made you the well-rounded individual that you are, Emil. But no, that that is not <laughs> what I was mentioning there. Obviously, I doubt there's anybody who wants to say anything like that out of me. So, what you know, it really, what it really is is that any market, any veteran or experienced market observer or trader or anybody else, this happens quite frequently, especially in the short run, because you you think you got everything measured, you got you think you got everything clocked, and then wham just out of the clear blue seemingly sometimes, the markets will move not just against you but decidedly against you. And what I'm talking about specifically here is that for weeks and really months, we've been talking about on the show and I've been writing constantly about how the fact that bond markets in particular seem to be completely, utterly ignoring Jay Powell and Christopher Waller and Rosen and all these other Fed officials who are more and more confident and adamant that they're going to taper their qe which was supposed to have provoked some 2013 style bond route sell-off reaction but as again up until last week it didn't seem to you know the market didn't seem to care much if at all and then all of a sudden that day that we were talking last week on friday i believe it was maybe it was thursday suddenly bond yields spiked and now they're substantially higher than they were, you know, the 10 years, 10 years, about fifteen or 15 or 16 basis points off of that low that week. And it seems like, okay, have we reached finally the taper tantrum? After ignoring Powell and all this taper talk for so long, our market's finally starting to act very 2013-ish, getting with the program.
0: It seems like a delayed fuse, a hell of a long delayed fuse for the taper tantrum, to take off, but to spark, but maybe, okay, you identify, you actually pinpoint a particular moment when this rally, or is it, yeah, rally in yields, thus bond prices falling down, may have started. And you point to a Fed governor. Now, this is a Fed governor, not to be confused with a president, such as Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan, who has recently resigned for reasons, or boston fed president eric rosengren who also uh, recently resigned for reasons the same reasons yeah (laughs) we're going to be talking about mr christopher waller governor august 2nd cnbc what happened was it him that was it yeah
1: go early go fast he wanted to create a new slogan which was he was so thrilled about progress in the in the labor market, the recent payroll reports up until, or up before the last one in August, you know, these almost million, uh, million job or payroll increases in, in July and June, thinking that, boy, if the labor market continues along at this pace, not only are we going to have to taper, we're going to have to taper real fast so that we can clear the calendar out to get to the rate heights, because we need to slow this sucker down. This economy is getting way, way, way too overheated if things continue as they are. So on August 2nd, Mr. Waller goes on CNBC, says, go early, go fast. And again, the bond market said, eh, okay, whatever. However, a couple of days after that on August 4, the 10-year Treasury and the 30-year Treasury, and I believe the five-year and some of the other parts of the curve, They bottomed out on August 4th and then yields have slowly started to rise ever since then.
0: I want the audience to, we're going to show some graphs, but I want the audience to go to Alhambra Investments and the blog posts and find this article, which is titled Finally the Taper Tantrum or What's Wrong with August? And it was posted on the 24th of September because I want people to see these graphs, which are revelatory. Jeff, In previous episodes, we have compared this reflation, the post-COVID reflation, to other reflations, globally synchronized growth, global growth, green shoots, to get a sense of bond markets saying, yes, we are going to explore the upside and how much enthusiasm they have in, let's get rid of these safe assets. US Treasury, let's get rid of them. Because the future is so optimistic, so we've done that before. You did something similar, and I don't know how you came up with this idea. Was it just your memory? But you said, you know what? I remember that bond yields rose also in 2020 at this similar time period. And you started comparing this summer to last summer. I'm going to pull up a graph now.
1: Yeah, so August 4th of this year, bond yields have been gently rising until the last week or so. They, they picked up a little bit. And August 4th really should ring a bell with anybody who's watching these things closely because not just August 4th of 2020, but also, or 2021, but August 4th of 2020 had been the low in yields last year too. So right away, we have some sort of coincidence here where. Starting in early August and coincidentally, the same exact day, bond yields have risen. Now, already we're thinking, okay, maybe this is just random coincidence, but either way, there was no taper talk or rate hike talk in August of 2020. So if we're trying to assign a taper tantrum to the action in yields in 2021, then it has to be something completely different than August of 2020, when even though the patterns here are strikingly similar. So maybe we should go back a little bit further in time and see whether or not there's something common seasonality wise that maybe it's not tapered in 2021, maybe something repeats each and every August. So it's something beyond just the current year or even the last a couple of years. So that's that was really, you know, if, having done this a long time and having closely watched these uh, bond markets, you know, the answer was all back you know it wasn't like this was a question this is you know you never ask a question you already know the answer to and the answer is yes this is a repeating phenomenon that isn't just the last couple of years but it is weird how and probably just random coincidence how in 2020 and 2021 yields bottomed out on exactly the same day august of august 4th and maybe there is some kind of fractal behavior that can explain that i don't know for sure but that leads us to think okay so there's something going on here that's a repeating pattern that is occurring in uh not just the last couple of years yes
0: yeah, so it's probably a coincidence august 4th two years in a row or it's simply the limits of human knowledge and we can't possibly understand how this complex system and the fractal nature of it is functioning with such incredible symmetry but you like you said you went back even one more year to 2019 and that bottom, there was a bottom in yields that year as well, August twenty eighth, twenty nineteen. That's three. Years what are the in a chances,
1: row. right? I mean, three. That's you know once or twice as a coincidence or a randomness. Three times is you know we're starting to we're starting to see a pattern emerge here. Let, and remember, twenty nineteen specifically, twenty nineteen was globally synchronized downturn, becoming recession. August of twenty nineteen. The two-year, 10-year calendar spread and the yield curve inverted. Everybody was paying it. Recession signals everywhere. Things were going wrong. Remember September 2019, the repo rumble. So why is it that yields were rising from August of 2019 forward in the same way they would rise in August of 2021, or 20 forward, and then again this year? So now we have somewhat contrary signals. We have taper in 2021, meaning good things, the economy is doing really well, yields rise. We have in 2019, heading toward a recession, things looking really dark and bad, the Fed cutting rates, yet re-yields rise. And in 2020, in the middle, which was after the recession, but before any kind of recovery, yet again, yields were rising post-August of that year. Seeing a pattern emerge here.
0: Patterns, once is a coincidence. You just started saying something, a very well-known phrase that I'm going to read from this book by Ian Fleming, Goldfinger. Uh, this publishers, Folio Society. I highly recommend it to anyone who's into books to get their books from Folio Society, which makes beautiful works of art. Chapter 14, Jeff. And it's guess what? Bonds. Goldfinger. He said, Mr. Bond, they have a saying in Chicago once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, the third time, it's enemy action. It goes on from there, and he tells Oddjob to take Bonds. Uh, to the pressure room. Jeff, do you know, so Ian Fleming, great so James writer. James
1: Bond was going to be compressed like a calendar spread sort of thing? Yeah, that's, that's my terrible Bond <laughs> joke. You, uh, you know what he I'll did though? I'll leave the though. comedy to you.
0: No, no, that's good comedy. Only an economist <laughs> would love that sort of joke. Uh, Jeff, you know, Fleming didn't continue. He didn't say, and a fourth time is this, and a fifth time is this. Why? Because that would be absurd, because once, twice, thrice, you know, things only happen that far. Jeff, is truth stranger than fiction? Do Always. we see this pattern? That's why we,
1: exactly, that's why we love reality TV, right? Because truth is stranger than fiction and more interesting, and we don't have to suspend our disbelief because it's right in front of our very eyes. And wouldn't you know it, in 2018, same sort of pattern, um, it was interrupted, of course, was one key difference, but yet we have this late summer bottom in yields, or at least some sideways that sort of led to a rise in yields again through September and October. But the difference in 2018 was the landmine, which took yields rapidly lower again uh, before the end of the, that calendar year. So 2018, too, you get to the August and you start to see post-August rise in yields. Again, 2018, more like maybe 2021, in that you know Fed was rate hikes, the economy was supposed to be really good. So that modest rise in yields seemed to be consistent with at least what the Fed was doing, in, dark, in sharp contrast to 2019 and 2020. So we have different cases of the Fed doing different things and the economy believed to be doing different things, yet the same sort of behavior in yields, especially September and October.
0: And you say in your note here, in your blog post that you see something similar in 2015 and 2016, incredible.
1: A little bit less. So, but 2017 is probably the better example because bond yields bottomed out. Then I believe September 5th, so not August, but close enough to August. And then they started this gentle rise post September, which was consistent with then quantitative tightening as well as globally synchronized growth. So. Again, the repeating pattern, no matter what the kind of condition or perception of the current state of affairs, as well as whatever the Federal Reserve is doing, either tightening, loosening, whatever, in between five years in a row, September and October, in some, some, some instances, four of the five instances, also November and December, where bond yields finish the year on a gentle slope upward.
0: Jeff, when we were on Nick Black's show, the let me get the show correctly because I always mix it up. Crypto and coffee. I always think coffee and crypto. Nick Black, crypto and coffee. You can find him on YouTube and all manner of places on Twitter. I said, you know what I think is happening right now is that the COVID case counts are peaking and therefore things are relatively better. And so we're experiencing a reflation. But your work here suggests that I'm just... Applying a narrative that's convenient because this pattern's always happening, right? So, maybe well, yeah, what I was saying is is crazy. What it I'm gonna... doesn't
1: have to be mutually exclusive either. We can have this underlying seasonal pattern, which works out to be. Let's be honest; it works out to be a little bit more optimism, right? The bond market looks at September and October, and look, and no matter what's going on anywhere. Yields start to rise, which means a little bit more growth in inflation expectations than had been previously during the summer and late spring. So we get a little bit more optimistic each September and October, and maybe it's for different reasons. Maybe this year it really is because, the Delta COVID case counts are declining. It doesn't seem to be as nefarious and bad as as it once did maybe a couple months ago. And maybe we will get through this unscathed. So you know, it doesn't have to be an either-or here. We could have this underlying seasonality coupled with idiosyncratic factors each calendar year, but the net result seems to be exactly the same time and again, despite whatever perceptions are going on at the time. So that, that to me says the underlying seasonality that has to be taking place must be something deeper more fundamental than whatever it is that comes along each and every year
0: we i'm don't worry jeff i'm going to come back to you but i'm just telling the audience that in part two we're going to talk about why this is happening According to the audience, because last week you sent out a tweet saying uh, Hey everyone, this is what I'm looking at. I'm seeing this seasonality in August. Why do you think it's happening? So I've got a list of everyone's responses. We're gonna go over them. By the way, you can find Jeff on Twitter at Snyder underscore AIP But before we go there and to close out this episode, Jeff, why don't you give us an idea? What is your theory why we're seeing this incredible pattern repeated summer after summer after summer
1: well there's two main ideas i have here in this episode i want to do the technical one and we'll talk about the other one which i think is an even stronger explanation in the next episode when we get to talk about more than just august but there is something called the globally systemically important bank right gsip global global systemically important banks now, Global systemically important banks are something that came out of Dodd Frank, and then were, were then were uh, further, you know, uh, expanded around the rest of the world through Basel III, which was essentially looking at the financial crisis in 2008 the exact wrong way and thinking the problem was bad banking. Therefore, we have to put a we have to put the we have to put the lockdown on be, these large banks because while well, all we know of the crisis is that several of the largest ones failed and that imperiled everybody else's financial condition. So we're going to identify globally systemically important banks or global systemically, whatever the hell a G-SIB is, we're going to identify them and we're going to make them hold additional capital against their assets to make sure that they are actually sound institutions instead of pretend sound institutions, even though capital ratios that we had come up under all the way up through basal two and a half didn't seem to matter a damn bit. So we're going to put some surcharges on these banks because we have to. And the way these surcharges work is, uh, there's a couple different ways. Globally, uh, banks are required to calculate their scores under method one, which breaks down their balance sheet into five different categories. I have them written down. It's size, interconnectedness, substitutability, complexity, and my favorite, cross-jurisdictional activity because that gets into the reality of the monetary world. Now, for US banks, there's eight GSIBs in the US. They, they, they substitute from, for substitutability a weighted short-term wholesale funding score, which is interesting if you're thinking about these things. Now, what happens is, in 2016, these rules were adopted in the United States and the Federal Reserve uh, implemented its method two for GSIB scores, which took account these wholesale funding techniques. And what that meant was going forward every bank had to, when they filed their fr y15s which are which used to be an annual report on their balance sheet which has been since become quarterly when they filed their calendar year-end fr or y15s they have to take into account all of these five factors and calculate their g sub scores which means during the fourth quarter of every year banks are keenly aware that their activities in the fourth quarter of every year are going to affect their GSIB score and then potentially trigger a SLR, security, uh, the, the, the I always want to say Sepsutters. SLF, the SLR, which can actually have material impact on the amount of capital, therefore the, a drag upon efficiency on balance sheet, uh, their balance sheet uh, mechanics. So in the fourth quarter, what the Federal Reserve itself has found is that banks shock Get your shock face ready. They manipulate their balance sheets to make sure that in the fourth quarter they look very different so that they're window dressed in just the right way at the year end. And one of the primary ways that they have done this is through their derivative book, believe it or not. They use compression trading to lower their gross notional book count which affects their, I believe that's under the complexity score for the basal. It also affects their wholesale score under method two, which means they're intentionally shrinking their derivative books in order to end up in whichever score bucket they want to. And this has been established as having taken place, especially in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, not yet 2021. So the four years where we see the strong rise in bond yields corresponds with the same four years in which banks are are significantly manipulating their gross notionals in their derivative books, which means they are not only window dressing, they're actually pulling back on their dealer activities. And that is really the the impetus behind this one particular uh, Federal Reserve notice, which was, hey, are banks actually in the fourth quarter of every year sort of tightening up their dealer activities, leaving the, the uh, system high and dry in order to manipulate their GSIP scores? And where that would come into play in terms of rising bond yields during the fourth quarter, you have less derivatives, you have less need for collateral. Therefore, especially since most of these derivatives that are being compressed are interest rate swaps. So less interest rate swaps, which many are collateralized, less need for collateral. This may be a technical reason why, during the fourth quarter, bond yields seem to rise, regardless of perceptions of economy, markets, or the Federal Reserve. It's simply banks trying to manipulate and game their GSIB numbers so as to come up with whatever surcharge they feel most comfortable with. And the, the fact that they're doing this in a way that even the Federal Reserve has picked up on a notice tells you that it's probably a substantial enough, uh, it's having a substantial enough impact that it could explain part of what's going on in, in bond yields, as well as, I think more intriguingly, why time and again, think back to t- January 2018, the system is left high and dry in, in the fourth quarter of 2017 because of this g stuff. And all of a sudden, we don't have much of a In fact, we have dollar tightening kicked off from that point forward. So this might not just explain the rise in yields in a technical matter late in each year, but it also might explain why in some periods in the start of the following year, it tends to be really bad. In some cases, significantly bad, so it becomes a more of a systemic problem moving forward. So that's, you know, I don't want to say that this is this is exactly what's going on or this explains everything. And a lot of what I'm doing here is speculating and and trying to draw what I think are reasonable conclusions. But there's a couple things that are absolutely happening. One of them is window dressing, compression and dealer book and dealer derivatives, therefore lowering the need for collateral. And I think that does happen to tie together, especially 2017, 18, 19 and 20 and likely 2021. because these rules really came into effect in 2016 and weren't more complete. They were phased in in 2017 and 2018, but they really started to have a a bigger impact in 2017.
0: Jeff, the BIS puts together a, a summary of derivative activities of 12 global money centers, as well as estimates for like some 30 different jurisdictions. And they report this twice a year, and it's always like six months behind. I don't happen to have the very latest data, but I'm going to pull up a graph that goes through partially through 2020. And Jeff, would you be surprised to see that globally, look at that sawtooth pattern. Look at when it plunges down, the total value, December, lower, huge fall. December lower again, right? And it keeps repeating every year. December is always lower. I have it through June, 2020, I didn't update it lately because I was getting a massage or a tan. I was very busy, but you were practicing your dance moves. uh, Yes, I got to make ends meet Jeff. (laughs) So there it is. There it is. It's in the, it's in the data. We can see it, I think. All right. yeah,
1: and it's a shame that the BIS doesn't do quarterly data or even monthly data but you know you can understand why they don't because it's as we've said repeatedly this is not an area that's very well studied it's not an area that's very very well monitored and so the data just doesn't exist and some of the data you have to wonder you know how accurate it is anyway because banks are notorious not just window dressing at year ends or quarter ends but you know they can window dress at any time they want, which is why we're in this particular episode, we're focusing on the entire fourth quarter, because that seems to be when all this compression trading activity takes place, which can seem to have, you know, and if you're one of these banks that are doing this window dressing activity, you don't wanna wait till the last minute to do it. You're gonna take your entire fourth quarter to make sure you're all your ducks in a row, so that you're not caught at the last minute with something you can't anticipate. So that's why you would expect that this to happen over these particular months.
0: right part two we're going to delve in deeper and broader we're going to expand our view and as well as listener requests and suggestions we're going to hear what the people think may be explaining this pattern the bond route the u.s sovereign bond route it's on it's full on right now it's been on since august to put some context around how much yields have risen in the last, I don't know, month and a half or so. I'm going to read out some numbers. The low recently, the recent cyclical low was put in at 1.156. We're talking about the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. Today, before the show, it's 1.538, a 38 38 basis point rise. Most of that has happened very recently. On September 22nd, we were at 1.3%. Today, this morning, 1.538, 24 basis points of the 38 so far. Jeff, this sort of reminds me, oh, by the way, have I introduced you, Jeff Snyder, Head of Global Research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, this sort of reminds me and you of what we saw in mid-September 2019. Which we saw- was
1: you know a significant rise in yields then too though for vast under vastly different circumstances right we just talked about in the previous episode mm-hmm. September of 2019 and really the middle of 2019 was very different I mean we had recession signals in the yield curve which everybody's supposed to pay attention to the twos and tens the inverted Which got everybody talking about, you know, hey, what's going on here? You know, globally synchronized growth, inflation, where did those things go? Jay Powell was doing, he had done one rate cut already in late July 2019. Things were really different back then than they seem to be today. And yet, in September of 2019, despite these darkening recessionary clouds, not just in the US, but really around the rest of the world, with many countries like Germany and Japan already kind of in recession at that point, you know, these dark clouds gathering, it didn't seem Maybe perhaps reasonable that bond yields, not just in the U.S. but around the world, but you know particularly treasuries were rising all of a sudden after signaling this darkening, this darkening downturn, recession, and all this other stuff. We start out September with a really serious and very short and sharp sell-off, which I think you correct me if I'm wrong, Emil, was about 40 some basis points in a matter of seven trading sessions. 43. 43 in seven days. I mean makes what's going on today seem like, you know, the the kitty table, which that was a real bond sell-off, a real bond route. And again, September, September, September. So here we have very different, it, there was no taper in September, quite the opposite, or September 2019, quite the opposite. We've got the Fed doing rate cuts. The Fed had already stopped quantitative tightening. And very soon after, of course, we had the repo event, which led to repo operations which aren't repo operations but they mimic repo operations and then after that you have not qe5 so very different than what's going on today yet yields were behaving in the same
0: way regardless dear audience i'm going to read two pieces of poetry right now about the seasons and i want you to guess which one is the bard of the bond market and which one is alexander pushkin okay Flowers that deck the autumn fields more closely touch the heart than all the blooms that summer yields. Their petals with sweet poignance drip, so too most sweetly lip meets lip when it is time to part. Okay, that's example one, now let's see. Maybe September just isn't the month to be in U.S. treasuries. Spring is supposed to be the season for rebirth and regeneration. When the darkness of winter is cast off for the warming sunshine of seasonality representing the always eternal unwritten future the chance for a do-over maybe for once something will actually going go right <sighs> it's beautiful yeah, i can't believe you so it's you're embarrassed. what i wrote compared by comparing it to a real writer and pushed <laughs> this is lovely <laughs> lovely i personally yeah. don't like spring i don't like spring i love summer I'm more of an autumn man myself, but Jeff, I think there are a lot of people who like autumn a lot too. And there is, wow. you know, we've talked about
1: this before. There is a deep embedded seasonality that goes way back into the early days of the American Republic and the American uh, American. Uh, uh, economy that has to do with the flow of agriculture and the trade of goods and then there's of course a seasonality that with regard to the christmas shopping season every year it's a def it's a defined seasonal pattern in economic data money flows everything else so it stands to reason that there would be some kind of underlying seasonality in certain marketplaces like u.s treasuries that are related to you know pricing optimism that's kind of what we, when we talk about growth and inflation rising nominal yields Signal rising optimism that we're going to see more growth and more inflation Hopefully more growth than inflation which is consistent with good times happy times things that we want to see an economy That's working so rising yield seasonality Hope hope doesn't spring eternal in spring. It may be it may be at least for the last decade or so It springs hope springs in
0: autumn Now we know roughly when the seasons are going to arrive and depart, but they never last exactly the same amount of time, right? There's a, there's a length, just like we learned from Game of Thrones, winter can last for many, many years. And as we've learned from uh, the fourth turning, a season can last an entire generation. When looking at bond markets, same thing. This seasonality that you were just discussing, we can observe them arriving roughly around the same time, with different lengths. The first one we're going to talk about is 2014. I'll pull up a graph. You inform us that's the shortest one of this set that we'll be looking at. Yeah,
1: 2014, we started out that year with tremendous amounts of optimism. You had the taper tantrum, which is really not a tantrum at all. It was the bond market saying, Ben Bernanke, we see what you see. Yes, we think maybe the economy is getting better. And then, late in 2013, starting September 2013, it was, oh no, maybe that's not the case. So throughout 2014, even as the labor market data in the U.S. got better, the bond market pessimism started to creep back in, slowly but surely on its way toward what we call Eurodollar number three, which is the third dollar shortage event since the global financial crisis. In fact, the third, including the global financial crisis, which was the first one. But even then, in this more and more determined pace lower, you know, almost a straight line lower bond yields which is again in rising pessimism you get to late august and early september and there's a temporary deviation a very substantial one which today would be called a bond bloodbath, which <laughs> yields rose for a couple of weeks there up until into october which signaled at that time maybe a little bit not maybe not not more optimism but a little bit less pessimism at least for those couple of period or those couple of weeks in september of 2014. And then, of course, right quickly back to the collateral problems and the rest of Eurodollar number three, which became history very soon after.
0: Let's go back a few more years. So, over there, that little bond route we saw was 29 basis points. In 2011, it was a little bit longer. I'm going to pull up the graph so people have a visual context. Some of the same things were happening. Europe was at center stage again, you know?
1: yeah except in 2011 the crisis part of it had already registered so it's sort of the cart before the horse in this instance where we have our landmine sharp drop in yield through the middle of 2017 though, or 20 2011 excuse me though still consistent with the pattern seasonality summer seems to be the worst part of it and then you get to september no it was in august but you know september we're still in the same area um the federal reserve does operation twist the swiss national bank pegs this franc to the euro The european central bank does a couple of its things and next thing you know bond yields are off to the races higher and then you have a real bud bath where the 10-year u.s treasury yield rolls by more than 70 basis points which if that happened today i mean it would be so shocking that i think uh, it would it would seem like it was the end of the world
0: it was the end of the world i remember it (laughs) uh we're moving forward one more year and now we've got another similar pattern repeating. In 2012, this time from July to August, we saw a rise of 43 basis points in U.S. Treasury yields. I'll pull up the graph. Let us know if you want to tell us anything about it, Jeff.
1: Just what's striking about the chart as you pull it up is how similar it is to 2021. I mean, it, it's, it's not exactly the same, but we would never expect to see exactly the same. But, you know, there is definitely some fractal, fractal uh, you know, hints of fractal behavior here going on. Though, again, you know, where we bought our yields bottomed in August 4th of this year, in 2012, it was July 25th, which was in the same general ballpark in somewhat you know different circumstances very different circumstances in 2012 anyway, which is what really grabs our attention. How can bond yields exhibit the same seasonal behavior when it's very, very different circumstances? In 2012 Things were going toward recession again. Europe was actually falling into a recession. It had been in a recession. The US would come very close to one in 2012, after the 2011 crisis. And much of the rest of the world, China emerging markets, were starting to see signs that their globalization happy days were over. So 2012, the skies were really darkening, whereas in 2021, they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be getting much brighter. And the Fed, rather than thinking about taper cutting back in 2012, the Federal Reserve was actually uh, would in September of 2012 announce a third QE and then a fourth later in December. So going the federal Mon- Federal Reserve monetary policy going in the opposite direction from what it's doing today. Yet, same seasonality shows up in 2012 versus 2021.
0: I'm going to quote you from your article, but before I do, I first have to tell people where to go to see that article because I don't think I introduced it to people yet. You can find it at Alhambra Investments, the blog post, where Jeff posts nearly every day except for Saturdays and Sundays. Jeff, get back on it. Come on. Maybe more autumn than strictly August. September 27th, 2021 is what you want to see when you look for this article. Here's the quote. Though these are all, or nearly all, following along the same calendar regimes, none of their bond routes have ever represented anything more than a temporary waypoint in between the way down and yields. Meaning, hey, we've seen this pattern before. We're in the middle of the route right now, but remember what happened last time. Remember the context of a global silent depression. Don't expect this route to continue. It's leading to recovery.
1: What is this little burst of optimism that happens every fall? How can we explain it? That not every year, 2013 being one of the examples, and 20, 2015 maybe less of an example too. But other than that, most of these years, as we talked about in the previous episode, especially 2017, 2018, 19, 20, and 21, it seems like the seasonality repeats even more more pronounced. The seasonality is itself more pronounced. So how, how can we explain it? What I said in the last episode was that there's this technical explanation, banks window dressing for their g G-Sib surcharges, but well, that would not explain 2012 or 2011 because that didn't come about until 2016. and really didn't have an impact until 2017. So there must be something else happening too. It can't be just the g- G-SIB surcharge, and I don't think it is. I think that's just part of the, what's going on here. So there's something else going on that may be related to just pure emotion and sentiment. You know, we get more optimistic in the fall simply because maybe there's something human nature about it, but I also think there's something very much economic about it, too. You think about, Emil, do you remember Stanley Fisher's quote from 2014, where he said, you know, Sweetie. year after year, we predict recovery, and then two quarters into the year, we have to apologize for why it's not happening. Well, it kind of sounded like it was a, throw away, a throwaway line when he was apologizing in Sweden because he wouldn't do that in America. He was in Sweden apologizing on behalf of the Fed screw-ups. What he was really saying is kind of human nature, too. We do think in calendar chunks. It's very, it's very you know, human to do so. And so we think you know, the economy starts out every year. And what Stanley Fisher was saying, it started out every year poorly. And remember residual seasonality, too, that debate in the GDP figures, how the first quarter of every year seemed to look very different from all the other quarters to the point where the BEA actually changed its seasonal calculations and adjustments to account for the fact that the first quarter of every year seemed to start out badly. And where we're going with this is that each and every year, we end the year on promise. Things look good, things look like, okay, maybe next year things will fall in line, But then what happens we start out every year the following year in the wrong way and then we think okay this is bad it's happening again we let it fester through the summer and then by the fall what ends up happening by the fall it becomes too hard to ignore and and usually what you see is the federal reserve or some central bank or something around the world attempting to correct the problem which is what stanley fisher was talking about which is why you see qes for example introduced in September. Uh, 2014, as we were just talking about, there was TLTROs in the ECB. When? Early September of 2014. In 2017, a little bit different. The Fed, in order to instill more confidence in its globally synchronized growth forecast, decided it was going to say, we're going to cut back on our balance sheet, quantitative tightening. When did that happen? September of 2017. 2012, we just talked about what? 2012, everything was going in the wrong directions. July 26th. Mario Draghi makes his infamous promise. And then in September 2012, as the year which was supposed to be recovery, started out badly and only got badly through the fall. By September, the Federal Reserve says we need to to push some optimism into the system. QE3, September of 2012. 2011, as we just talked about before, bond yields bottom. In September, again, same pattern. First quarter of 2011 was a negative number. It was so bad, it was an even negative number. Nothing got better. You know, everybody always says, oh, forget the first quarter, second quarter will be better. It didn't get much better. Then you get to the third quarter, and it doesn't seem, the summer doesn't seem to be getting any better. And by September, what does the Fed say? Operation twist. We got to instill some confidence. So the seasonal pattern in the economy and markets seems to repeat year after year after year, too. It's almost a sentimental seasonality, where we start off, oh, crap, this year isn't going the way we want. In summertime, it doesn't get any better, because we're going to give it a chance. And then, as Stanley Fisher said in 2014, we have to, by September, we're apologizing for missing all of our, our forecasts, and we have to do something about it. So there's a very seasonal optimism in, OK, this year was scratched that. It didn't work, but there's always next year. And we get to September, the Fed does something, the ECB does something, the Bank of Japan does something to, that, just, that just harkens back to our deep fundamental human nature and calendars, and we think this might be the year, only to be disappointed again next year.
0: <laughs> uh, poetry is the distillation of understanding, emotion, down to as few words as possible, as opposed to a novel, which you can prattle on and on and on. So. What you just said can be distilled into a single sentence. And I'm going to read a sentence such as that, but I want the audience again to play the game of guessing which of the following sentences and sequences is poetry by the bard of the bond markets, and which one is Robert Louis Stevenson. So here we go. Can you guess which one is which? Hope springs eternal, and for our cases, That's not in spring. Now here's another option. In the other gardens and all up the vale from the autumn bonfires see the smoke trail. Pleasant summer over and all the summer flowers. The red fire blazes, the gray smoke towers. Sing a song of seasons, something bright and all. Flowers in the summer, fires in the fall. Jeff, I think you should apply for it to be a uh, poet laureate of the bond market. Because this is a very good distillation, what you said here. Hope spring, etern- springs eternal. And for our cases, that's not in spring. It's in the autumn, for the reasons that you explained.
1: Yeah, and it's not like it's, uh, you know, contrary to how it's portrayed, these are never like full-throated, happy days, optimism, throw a parade type of, of situation. It's really kind of, OK, this year turned out to be really, much, didn't turn out to be the way we wanted it to. So a little bit more less little bit less pessimism that maybe next year goes right, but still you know we 've seen this movie too many times before we know how it ends, so maybe next year could be good, but we 're not really putting a whole lot of money on it so we 're not going to sell all of our bonds we 're going to hold on to a lot of them a little bit of them, but we 're going to hold on to a lot of them, and we might sell a little bit just to lighten up on our our pessimism a bit and that 's really what this optimism and sentimentality and the seasonality seems to be. And then, you know, post 2016, this gsib nonsense added to it could kind of sharpened and more make a more pronounced and uh, repeated, repeatable and recognizable pattern during that fourth, you know, not just the fourth quarter, but September, October,
0: and November. If anyone would be interested in literary uh, seasonality, they can check out the Folio Society's anthologies for each of the seasons. I've got autumn here. Summer, spring, and winter, they're all good. If anyone wants to learn about how this is related to the Japanese bond market, they can go to Alhambra Investments and look up August avoids zero in JGBs, which we're not going to go into detail, but just to note that we saw a bottom in Japanese government bonds on August 4th. Unbelievable. So it happened there as well. Jeff, we are now going to that section of the program where listeners... Offer their explanations for what's happening, okay? And you haven't yeah, heard these. Yeah, this is the before. part I've
1: been looking forward to because I really want to hear what people have to say about this. Because you no, know, I've offered my ideas, and you know I think they're reasonable. But that, that doesn't mean I know exactly what's going on either. And I'd like to hear what other people have to say because there's probably other factors that need to be considered as well. There's other things that can be going on.
0: Okay, I'm going to read two right here that fall under the category quarter end bank activity. The first one is from at the last fox stand. Does this have the blah does this have to do with institutions tending to pull back on their risky activities, window dressing coming into the end of Q3. Here's at HJC Dark Horse 1. If I know that you know that I know that quarterly reporting is coming up and the implications, do I move early or politely wait for you to get it ahead settled of and then take my <laughs> turn? The yeah. idea must ripple through the ticking clocks upsetting the timing, might even break some springs. So. Quarter and yes. bank activity.
1: It has, there has to be some of that too. And as we've identified repeatedly, September is a key one. And we also add into that the federal government's calendar, which ends in September as well. So there's, you know, I, there, I don't have any specific ideas that I can share that there's something there as well, but it is noteworthy that, you know, September in the bank calendar, as well as the federal government's calendar, is quite a pronounced period. period too. So yes, there has to be something to that as well.
0: I'm going to show very quickly a piece of art by David Parkins, which we had him illustrate September seasonality. Beautiful, beautiful. I love it. It's beautiful, like the
1: guy's going across the bridge, then it looks very different.
0: (laughs) At least there isn't someone on the other end with a simtar, like in Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. I always think about that when I cross those kind of bridges. Agricultural seasonality. Where's the rum when you need it at this early hour? Agricultural seasonality. The first one at Mr. Christoph Egen. Start of fall planting season for winter crops. At underscore Mikiski. I know that here in the States, the farmers are starting to prepay and line up credit for next year's crop inputs, etc. At TSP Smart. Money moves to safety while on vacation in the Hamptons. Stocks weak, bond bought, yields pull back. And
1: at... And when they come back from vacation, it's the opposite, right? You know, sell in May, the, the stock market uh,
0: uh, adage. At Hustler Hindu, is it Santa Claus? Agricultural <laughs> yes. seasonality. No,
1: I love the ag... because as we said before, there is that seasonality that goes back to the agrarian economy the early agrarian economy American economy and it's not just the US too you can see the same thing around the rest of the world just that US exported a lot of what it did and so money would flow in the opposite direction of agricultural produce which meant that they were very very defined seasonal choke points and low points around September and October every year which is why historically speaking you see a lot of market Crashes around that time because it was a choke point in in the uh, in the money and economic flow in the economy. So yeah, I mean, even though agriculture is not as anywhere near, anywhere near the, the uh, proportion of the economy that it is that it used to be that it is today, you know, that doesn't mean that there are, there are you know sectors built upon agriculture that do exhibit these flows. And again, as I said before, Santa Claus, yes, Christmas, Christmas is a definitely not just for retailers, but also finance and money. Money flows. There's much more money flowing around the economy late in the year than in the beginning of the year through the commercial channels, because of the Christmas shopping season. It's, there, is, there is some non-economic, non-macro explanations for the seasonality. It just it doesn't necessarily lend
0: itself to why would bond yields rise and people get more optimistic. Here are a couple ideas we haven't discussed at all, and they both come from at? flashy underscore boy underscore mall and they have to do with china well i would think it has to do with the upcoming chinese golden week holiday the pboc is gathering liquidity to hold them over that specific holiday things always get interesting from a liquidity aspect around these chinese holidays also keep an eye on the usd hkd cross here's part two also, China has been selling metals from their reserves over the last couple of months. As a longtime student of Jeff, this kind of screams liquidity problem to me. China.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that was brought up too, because yes, as we said, you know, 2018, the landmine. One of the biggest, uh, biggest markers for that for me was the Chinese coming out of their national holiday, Golden Week, and saying. Uh-oh, we think things are bad here. Yeah, there's absolutely, you know, we, we, you have to factor that there's a tremendous amount of Chinese dollar influence in this seasonality too. As I would also point out, the beginning of every year, simply because that's when the communists like to do their planning. They like to, they do their planning during the fourth quarter, and then they unleash their plan. And it usually has a January effect as well. And if you're, you're a bank operating in the global euro dollar system, you have to be aware of the Chinese January bank effect whatever that might be. might be. It might be more liquidity, it might be less liquidity, it might be more stealth uh, interventions, it might be less. And so during the fourth quarter, you're thinking ahead, what are the Chinese gonna do? And maybe sometimes that's, some, for some reason I can't explain or nobody else can explain, that tends to be treasury negative. Who knows, but there's absolutely, China is involved in this too, especially with
0: their golden week holiday so pronounced during that period of the calendar. The last one the last category is treasury bills notes and bonds two very quick comments and then a little bit of a longer one again at flashy underscore boy underscore mall four-week treasury bill anomalies the key next one at bobby underscore brown t-bill yields start falling precisely from august 18th 2021 now that was all on twitter but youtube also exists and you can Add lots of comments in the comments section, which is where we go to next. Super F11. As credit gets tighter for seeing the September quarter end. UST bonds and notes tend to get sold by borrowers in August in order to make up for reduced credit availability. As this credit tightness tends to linger until the December quarter end, yields continue to remain elevated until January of the following year when credit conditions once again seem to relax somewhat, allowing US Treasury, UST bond yields to drop again. Ideas, what do you think about those, Jeff?
1: I think there's a lot of good stuff here and I'm I'm like I said, I'm glad I solicited the opinion because I think you have to take into account all of those. The T-bills, especially. I mean, something we talk about all the time. And it's you know, and again, there is no one explanation for what's going on here, and it can't be one explanation because the treasury market and the global economy, which all of these things are linked together, so unbelievably complex. It almost it's almost certainly a combination, probably of a lot of these different things, not just the sentimentality that I described and probably a little bit less of the g surcharge nonsense. I mean, that might, that might have some effect, but there is an underlying fractal type behavior where we see this time and again, especially over the last five years, where the bond market gets a little more optimism in the autumn. And it's not really exactly clear why that is, except that it doesn't seem to relate to whatever the Fed is doing or whatever the economy is doing, which kind of sounds counterintuitive. And it's certainly what that means in our current circumstances, as we're seeing this optimism creep back into the bond market in 2021, it doesn't seem like we can say this is a taper tantrum because so far it's no different than last year's August and September or the year before that or the year before that or the year before that. So it doesn't seem like maybe maybe I didn't get caught with my pants down after all. And this is just normal autumn type behavior. And if that's the case, then What are we really saying here? We're saying we're looking ahead to next year in a very different fashion than Jay Powell is.
0: If you had a shadow money dashboard, a credit and collateral dial measurement system, what would would some of the switches be on this dashboard? What would some of the dials represent? In part three of this episode, we're going to name a few of these measurements that everyone that's watching right now can go and check and see which way they're going to get a sense of what's happening in the shadows of the monetary system. This show often informs viewers that collateral is critically important to the monetary order. And the most pristine, perfect form of collateral that you can use to then borrow more money is the US Treasury bill. But there seems to be a shortage right now. Why? We're going to talk about it. We're also going to talk about whether or not it means trouble. Yet. Not yet. How will we recognize when it might mean trouble? What sort of dial switches on our monetary dashboard need to go into the red before we think there's something going wrong? We're going to talk about it next with Jeff Snyder, the head of global research of Alhambra Partners. Jeff, the article for those that want to read along or sing along, maybe. Have we thought about doing that, Jeff? A sing-along with the little ball and the dot and the words?
1: Maybe. Well, I, don't, I, I hope that doesn't fall to me since you're going to do the dancing, because I don't have much of a singing voice. And I'm not sure about you as a dancer either, so we might just have to close the whole program down at that point.
0: How dare you? No, but you're right though. I had to leave Hollywood. I couldn't make ends meet. Dancing at private residences. Yeah, yeah. All right, that was we discussed that in part one. Okay, some next steps to watch for scarce collateral. That's the title of a blog post at Alhambra Investments by Jeff Snyder, September 24th, 2021. Here it is. First of all, we're going to talk about what's happening with treasury bills. Are there enough of them? Then we're going to talk about what are some of these measures, balance sheet line items that we can look at to get a sense of what's happening out there in the shadows. First thing we want to talk about is Treasury Secretary Yellen losing breathing room with, what, the debt ceiling, the amount of bonds, bills available? The amount of ability to borrow
1: more from the rest of the world, really from the banking system and hedge funds and things like that. So Janet Yellen has been, ever since the summer and even before then, cutting back on Treasury bill issuance because she doesn't really have any choice as I always say, you know, uh, the Treasury Department, whether it's Yellen or any other Treasury sec- Secretary, they don't focus in on collateral, they don't care about collateral, their primary task, and their sole task is really just to manage the federal government's deficit. And so it's, it's immaterial to the, is- the bond, the bill issuance in particular, that the fact that Treasury bills have become such, a, and have always been, and become even more so, a huge part of the repo derivatives market collateralized Secured funding transactions, whatever you want to call them, they are key and play, play a key role in all of that. So Yellen's doing what she's got to do to manage the deficit situation according to congressional mandates and laws and statutes. And the money markets are saying, we want bills. We want more bills. We need these bills because they are a primary source of collateral.
0: But yet this graph that I've pulled up shows in these pink columns down at the bottom that there is less of them coming out. And on top what we see are the high, low, median auction value. So we're looking at the primary market, right? The first offer to primary dealers and what the yields are and what they're bidding. And what we see is as this, uh, as this uh, issuance is scaling down, we had seen a rise in yields, and, but recently we've seen them turn down. And right now we're looking at the US Treasury four-week bill equivalent, but guess what? We see the same pattern in the eight-week bill equivalent yields. So Jeff, what, what does that mean?
1: You, uh, for the four week and the eight, why the eight week went before the four week is that money market funds out of an overabundance and over, 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 over abundance of caution decided they didn't want to hold any bills that might expire during or when it was anticipated this debt ceiling drama would be at its maximum, maximum just in case there was an infinitesimally small chance the Treasury Department doesn't pay off a bill issuance because for a money market fund, Obviously, that would be catastrophic They would have to break the buck and all hell would break loose from that point forward. So some money market funds like to avoid any specific Q-sips that fall near or even just a little bit after when they anticipate the debt ceiling to be at its most serious drama. And that had caused first the eight-week because in August, we, became, we got October fell into that two-month window. And then in September, the four-week because then again, October falls into that window. You see money market funds start to avoid those two particular issues. But then late in September, it's, I'm sure the money market uh, aversion continued, but for reasons of likely scarcity, the rest of the system piled back into those bills regardless. No, maybe that was just the, the market saying, we don't believe the debt ceiling is going to be any problem whatsoever. We we changed our mind and we're not even going to be reverse, averse at all. Or it really is that there are so few bills that the need for bills is overwhelming whatever distaste money market funds have for them. And I would, I would
0: imagine it's more the latter than the former. We can observe that just in the prices paid for these bills but we can also observe it relative to the Fed's reverse repo program I'm gonna pull up a graph and you're gonna explain to us what the most recent uh, activity signifies when all of a sudden we're below that reverse repo program if I remember correctly is five basis points five basis points since the middle of June and you're right Emil
1: because the Fed's reverse repo is an alternative to all of these things, right? If you're a money market fund or a dealer or whatever, and you have cash, excess cash, then you can you can buy a treasury bill, of course, if they're available. If they're not available, you can lend your money in the repo market because it's secured and it's, it's just as safe. But if not enough collateral floating around in repo, you can't fight a, a, a sufficient number of collateralized borrowers. You can go to the federal reserve's reverse repo window which now the counterparty limits have been doubled to 180 billion a day which means you can pour a lot at the fed which gives you five basis points in return for lending the feds bank reserves back to them that's how ridiculous this stuff is however as we see in some of these money in some of these treasury bill auctions dealers and investment funds because remember indirect investors in bill auctions are not foreigners they're actually investment funds So you see indirect investors and dealers overbidding for Treasury bill collateral beyond the five, or below the five basis points the Fed pays at reverse repo, which tells you they are valuing bills well above where they quote unquote should, because if if your alternatives are less than five basis points in Treasury bill or five basis points at the Fed's reverse repo, if your only consideration is investment return, no one's gonna buy a bill for less than five basis points. Yet it happens time and time again. more consistently when there's fewer bills out there because treasury bills in particular have collateral value over and above their investment return characteristics as we can clearly see with the relationship to the reverse repo rate
0: now you explain in your article here that none of this is sign of imminent danger it's interesting behavior but not signaling imminent danger what might Signal imminent danger. We're gonna go over some of those that you provided us here. Let's see number one is Outrageous price behavior in the secondary as well as primary markets So we were just looking at the primary markets and in the secondary markets we would see yields plunging lower Is that right Jeff?
1: Especially our scramble for collateral early morning slams if we saw those where you know you get the three-month Treasury bill trading at zero in the early hours of the day or in during Asian trading in particular that would be a key indication hey what we're seeing now is a collateral scarcity that's becoming more of an outright shortage and that's where it becomes really a bigger problem or a bigger potential problem
0: option number two measure number two dial number two some Treasury bill issues are available for rent you say via the central banks secure central bank securities lending program. And then you say that this is not a preferable option for various reasons. You won't go into it here. Why? Tell us a little bit about this measure.
1: Yeah, I think it maybe blows a lot of people's minds that the Fed is in the securities lending business too. They understand how the system works. They just don't understand the implications about all these things. They certainly don't place enough importance on collateral. But yes, the Fed has several trillion, or what is it now, four or five trillion in assets in its portfolio. The treasuries that are in there, several trillion of those, many of those are available for the market primary dealers to knock on the Fed's, the Federal Reserve branch of New York, knock on their door and say, I want to borrow the security for, from you overnight. I'll pay you X number of dollars. It's actually an auction process, which is one reason why this is not a preferable auction. But either way, you can see that on a daily basis, the Fed does lend out about 30 or $40 billion in treasuries into the marketplace, and those have to be repaid with a little bit of interest the next day. Some of them are term, but most of them are overnight. And When you look at the Federal Reserve's current securities lending program, uh, outstanding, nobody's borrowing treasury bills. Very few treasury bills are being borrowed, which actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's one of the reasons why you have a treasury bill in the first place is that you don't need to borrow it.
0: And so if something was going wrong, we would see more borrowing, whether it's the overnight or the term. And then Jeff, is the term if you saw multiple the tra- days?
1: Yes, if we, saw tra- uh, if we saw lending at the Federal Reserve Securities window go way up, that wouldn't be just a sign of trouble. That would probably be a sign of imminent or serious trouble, because as I said, this is sort of a last, last resort. And it, it's true. Good. We did see something like, for example, in uh, 2020, There was a noticeable uptick, even though it wasn't a whole lot. I think it got up to 45, maybe 50 billion in some days in in March of 2020, where collateral was in such short supply, as much as it's distasteful to go to the Fed securities lending window, that actually did happen. So it's an indication of more serious stress if we see an uptick in the securities lending activity at FRBNY.
0: Okay, measures number three and four are related. Number three, scaling back the Fed's QE reinvestments, both absolutely, which is number three, but then later on here, you point out number four, proportionately changing them as well, perhaps. Tell us what you mean by both number three and four, scaling back and then changing the proportion of an investment here. Yeah, we
1: spent an entire episode on this previously, which was, you know, Going back to, to 2019, the repo stuff, the NOT-QE, while the Fed had, had bought a lot of Treasury bills, in fact, they were buying exclusively of Treasury bills under NOT-QE5 and how that was a huge mistake and it was the worst thing that they could do. And then the Fed actually admitted that it was a mistake because they stopped doing it. And when did they stop doing it? Right in the middle of the March 2020 crisis when things were so bad. So they realized that this was a big mistake. They were stripping the marketplace of these treasury bills that it badly needed. Remember, all treasury bills are on the run, so they're taking the best of the best of the best quality collateral out. So ever since that, that particular I think it was March 26th of 2020, the Fed's SOMA holding of treasury bills has been exactly the same for 80 weeks running. And I'm, I'm including this week in it, which this was written last week, so it was 79 last week. So for 80 weeks in a row, all the Fed has done is reinvest expiring bills to reach the same amount. It's exactly the same week after week after week. They don't buy any more, they only reinvest. So if we are thinking that maybe like March 2020, where the collateral system gets goes from scarcity to shortage, the Fed could theoretically, assuming it was a, it was a, first of all wise to what's going on, and second of all proactive about it, or even reactive about it, as it was in March 2020, they could instead of reinvesting those expiring Treasury bills, just let them roll off the um, roll off the summer holdings, allowing more uh, more at auction to be available to the marketplace, or they could, in theory, though I don't think it's likely, but if things really get that bad maybe they could actually outright sell some of their bills into the marketplace, which would mean even as QE is going on, even as they're adding more bank reserves for buying more treasury bonds and notes, they could sell bills, sort of an inverse twist here, sell bills, or actually it would be twist, sell bills and buy more bonds, even more bonds and notes, therefore maintaining the pace of QE while changing the the mix of purchases within it, the proportion of what's being bought and actually being negative on treasury bills. So, if the Fed starts to alter its SOMA holdings beyond, you know, for not an 81st week in a row at 326.044 million, then maybe that's an indication that the Fed sees something. And if the Fed sees something, that's an indication even more that something serious must be amiss in the collateral thing. And just to be clear, these things are not happening. There's no indication that these are going on right now. These are just some of the things that we would we would if we saw them take place in the Fed's holdings then that would tell us that something has changed. There is a materially materially uh, increase in uh, p- uh, collateral pressures and potential risk.
0: Exactly, we've gone over four measures so far, as you just made very clear. They're not at elevated warning, yellow, amber, orange, red levels. But here's one that's sort of, that is, and that's measure number five, and we've briefly mentioned it already, uh, and we talked about it in a big long episode already but the reverse repo program at the fed it is very elevated jeff any thoughts any update of where where we are right now at the heights where we're at right now i've stopped counting where are we 1.3 trillion dollars now yeah it's getting up there
1: right and that's really the only reason people have paid attention to it because you know hardly anybody knows what it really does and what it's for <laughs> yet it's such a big number you can't really ignore that you know 1.3 trillion nor can you ignore the speed at which that was reached, right? I mean, mm. no, it just kind of showed up out of nowhere in late February with Fedwire, there's a little tickle there. And then mid-March at the top in bond yields, all of a sudden, those two things were correlated almost exactly, we had deflationary pressure and we had the revised and the reverse repo, which suggested those two might've been related, but it's never been easy to disentangle all the potential causes for reverse repos upward slope, which is, as we just said, The simple dearth of treasury bills would cause some money market funds, they can't buy a treasury bill at a reasonable price, so they just park money at the reverse repo. And how much of that is money market funds being unable to source uh, collateralized borrowers or find collateralized borrowers in the repo market, because there isn't enough collateral, and that's why they're going to the reverse repo. So regardless, the reverse repo tells us that there is a, a dearth of options for most of those funds, that are putting money with the Fed, which then proposes that there is some level of scarcity in these instruments which provide the not just the best of the best of the best form of collateral, in many ways, they're the backbone of the frontline defense in the collateral system, which is so fungible and so dynamic that this is a really important thing. It's a really important factor to keep in
0: mind. I'm gonna add two more line items that we're gonna discuss. The first one is that people can go to and see, you know, where, if they're elevated or depressed and what that might mean. Yeah, for the all mobile. this stuff
1: is publicly available information. And I always, and you, I know, you would do the same thing, Emil. We always try to use publicly available information because we want people to be able to do this for themselves. We're not going to throw black box models at you or our own private calculation. Everything is publicly available. And really, the only service we're trying to provide is, you know, how do you interpret the data that you can get your hands on?
0: Let's interpret this line item, Securities in Custody for Foreign and International Accounts, U.S. Treasuries. I'm going to pull up the graph. This one, if we see this line falling, if we see it falling, I've got uh, the graph pulled up now, that is uh, a trouble. It's warning because you know, foreign nation, foreign officials, central banks, they let the uh, Federal Reserve hold in custody U.S. Treasury securities because of all the balance of payment issues for running a business. Because, fine, keep it in New York. It's like a custodian, like a correspondent bank, right? For, for yep. these treasury securities. And that's exactly
1: where the, the, uh, this accommodation grew out of. It was a foreign custodial, a correspondent uh, system, sort of, hey, you're going to need dollars in New York anyway, so let us hold your assets here. And then that
0: became, let us hold your treasuries. But like. Who Everyone who has a savings account off there for some reason, when things get bad, you're going to draw down that savings account. Same thing with treasuries. If all of a sudden, we, the, what we've seen over time is this line item decreases when there's trouble in the monetary system. The foreign official accounts need to take those treasuries out of custody and use them. To I I imagine to subsidize their own internal banking systems, and we've been on a downtrend, so that's negative, that's bad news. The most recent updated data, an uptick, so I guess that's better.
1: September, which is consistent with the rise in yields and the seasonality and optimism and things like that. So, you're right, Emil. This corresponds not directly, but in in seriously enough correlation with the tick data too, which shows that we send this we tend to see net selling in tick or. Net outflows from custody and uh, Federal Reserve custody, those two things tell us dollar shortage, collateral problems, those kind of things. Deflationary pressures
0: as well. My last contribution to the show foreign official plus international accounts reverse repro program. So it's a subset of what we had been talking about earlier. And let me show you this graph. When it rises, it corresponds with trouble a surge in this line item means something's going bad. I'm, going, I'm showing data going all the way back to 2004. If we zoom in, we see that the, the this line item is increasing. Most recently, we've had a little bit of a downturn heading same the same direction. Right,
1: since March, there's, yeah. that, there's that convergence point, same as the reverse repo. And, you know, a lot of quote-unquote mainstream gurus like to say that there's something going on with the reverse repo rate because we don't know what the Fed pays the reverse repo accommodation here but whatever regardless as we see in tick as we just showed in federal Reserve custody of foreign UST holdings there is a corresponding correlated pattern between how these things move together that matches up with bond yields and inflation expectations and real yield and euro dollar futures and all the stuff that we talk about it produces a comprehensive picture of what must be going on in the shadow money system and ever since march that's not good things it's more bad than good more deflationary pressures than inflationary pressures and if we try to break those down into further pieces looking at as we started out with this episode collateral it's you know there's scarcity in collateral which is probably contributing a lot to this tightness but it isn't gotten it hasn't gotten so bad that is creating real, serious, imminent danger.
0: Today's episode was brought to you by Macro Peace Theater, where I play the role of Alastair Cook and introduce various interesting essays by geopolitical strategists, macroeconomists, and I simply read them aloud, and that's it. Because people are busy, they're doing things, they can't be reading themselves. It's pretty successful. People have said, hey, this is great. This is very helpful. I'm in a commute. I'm nursing. I'm exercising. I'm running from the police. People are very busy. They don't have time to sit down and read. And so over this last week, I have read pieces by Jeff. Uh, Jeff's presentation to the George Gammon Rebel Capitalist Live Conference in June. I've also read pieces by Lynn Alden and Daniel Oliver, Karl Marx, George Friedman, Michael Pettis, the BIS. So it's pretty good, pretty well received so far. You can find it on this podcast feed, wherever this show is. Whenever Jeff's not on live, I'm reading things on a daily basis that you may find interesting. These things are about like 10, 15, 20 minutes. Jeff's presentation at the George Gammon Festivus spectacular was an hour, but it was one of your best. Jeff, I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you, I appreciate it. I'm glad that you're doing it because you know, as we often say here, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I, I think the fact, in some of your selections already show, you know, sometimes you need to hear about Karl Marx and some of the things he said. Sometimes you need to read. John Maynard Keynes, despite what neo-Keynesians do in his name, and some other thinkers. You know, I think you said uh, Daniel Oliver's one. Mm-hmm. Maybe we would have a spirited debate and have very, very different views on the world in central banking, but, you know, he's obviously a very smart guy, and maybe something he says sparks interest, and it's, it's really good to have a rounded view, a uh, rounded knowledge base of what other people are thinking,
0: too the longest serving radio talk show host in America often says that he prefers clarity to agreement, clarity of differences, so that the audience can then decide for themselves. And so by bringing these various voices, by reading around as opposed to narrowly, people can decide. They say, "Uh aha, well, this person's very smart and these are the points. Let me consider them. So I appreciate it, Jeff. I had a great uh, time again. Hopefully next week we can do it again.
1: Absolutely, it's autumn. It, autumn is the time to be happy. Autumn is the time mm. to be eternally optimistic, even if it's just a few basis points in treasury yield.
0: All right, thank you, Jeff.
1: All right, take care, Emil.